Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Happy to be with you again today. I'd like to welcome you all and uh, encourage you to uh, bring a Bible if you are able, or if you are driving, just uh, listen uh, as we are opening the Bible today, a very important subject, talking about the creation. And I would like to welcome uh, the panel today. Helen, how are you today? Yeah, I'm great. I'm so pleased to be here and to see each one of the panel and to speak to the listeners. And thank you, Brenton, for joining us also. We missed you last week. My apologies, Nick. Uh, it's good to be on and share God's word. I think we're going to have a very exciting study today. Ken, uh, so happy to have you with us also. Always a pleasure to be here, Nick. And Len, good to have you with us again. Thank you, Nick. Hello, listeners. Lija is also next to me here. Thank you, Lija, for joining. Yes, I feel very blessed to study God's Word. And Will, thank you for preparing this Bible study for us. You are the facilitator today. Thank you for joining us also. It's good to be here. Thank you, Nick. Look, we, we have a very interesting and very important uh, study today, and I don't want to take too much time anymore now. I will just hand it right to you, uh, Will, if you like to take us through. Thank you, Nick. Over the last uh, few weeks, we've been looking at what the Bible means to us, its origin and how to interpret the Bible. It's serving as the real authoritative source of our theology and why we believe that the Bible and the Bible only is our guide. Uh, we've learned how to appreciate its context and its language. But today, we're going to start at the very beginning Looking at the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, we'll quickly see how that presents a whole perspective or a whole vista, not only of human history, but the revelation of truth. And it unfolds in a remarkable way. But before we start, I think we need to pray. Brenton, would you pray for us? Certainly. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of prayer. We thank you for the privilege of reading your word. Your word says in the very first verses, in the beginning, God. We are praying to the God of heaven. We thank you that Jesus, our Savior, who is the creator and the Holy Spirit, who reveals Jesus to us, he will open our minds today as we study your word. Bless each panel member as we study the Bible together and as we share with our listeners. We pray, Lord, that we will come to know our creator and love him more and more. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it may surprise some people to realize that the book of Genesis forms the very basis for the rest of Scripture. In fact, a, a closer look would reveal that most of the major teachings or doctrines of the Bible have their source right here in Genesis, in these chapters. Perhaps I could ask the panel, what um, major doctrines come to mind? First of all, we have an insight of the nature of the Godhead in the creation record. Also, origins of the world, the universe, origins of man. Certainly. What more? It brings about the origin of the Sabbath, starting in Genesis 2, and going on to Genesis 3, gives us the origin of, origin of evil and the original promise of a Messiah and redemption, which then gives us hope. That's quite a sweep already of the major doctrines in the church, isn't it? Mm. Uh, what more? Uh, it also gives uh, an outline of God's plan 
explains how he created the world and mankind and what his requirements were for mankind. Amazing. We can actually find the beginnings of uh, the languages of the world and its peoples, the nations, right there in Genesis 10 with the Tower of Babel. What more? Are there any other major doctrines? Framework for Bible chronology in the genealogies from creation to Abraham? Yes. And perhaps uh, one of the the main issues, and unfortunately the worst, worst issues, of the introduction of sin. Yes, that's right. That's the origin of evil. The power of God's spoken word. Yes, right there in the beginning when he speaks the world into uh, existence. Power of God's spoken word. The nature of humanity. Marriage yes. between a man and a woman and stewardship of, of the earth and its resources. Yes, oh boy, I tell you, um, we've got here an enormous basis in, right here in the book of Genesis for all the major teachings of, uh, of the Bible. You know, millions of people have wondered about their existence. Where do I come from? Why am I here? What meaning is there to life? Who really am I? You know, the great philosophers uh, of the world have pondered these questions for thousands of years. And these fundamental questions are at the core of the creation account and are, in fact, uh, answered in the first two chapters of Genesis. I think we should go and open the Bibles now, right there, the first chapter of the book of Genesis, to start our search. In the beginning, where does it all start? So what important questions are answered in this very first sentence in the Bible? The very first sentence in the Bible is the easiest one to find, but for many it's the hardest to understand. The verse says, this is Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's quite a simple sentence, but man alive, is that a very important sentence? It talks about the pre-existence of God, power of God. It talks about the fact that the earth had a beginning. This is one thing that evolution and creation has in common, that there was a beginning, just that the timing is different and the means is different. Amazing. Thanks for uh, that lovely synopsis, Len. It is true that uh, the power of God is well demonstrated in this very first verse. You know, there are other verses in the Bible that also claim a creation aspect or a creation of the world Perhaps we could look at a few. Can anyone else suggest any others? Well, just before we do that, I'd like to just make a comment on the fact of that before we were created in the beginning is very important. Pre-creation, in the beginning, there was God. You know, he designed an ecosystem for us. He created the habitation of the earth perfectly for his new creatures in order to sustain life. And as we go through this, we'll see... Or as we study this, our Earth is located at a precise location or precise distance from the sun, not too far, not too close. Um, the sun is perfectly sized, so it didn't produce too much energy or destroy life. There is abundant water on Earth and a breathable atmosphere. The moon is just the right size to control the tides. Magnetic field is fine-tuned to keep us from getting fried by the sun. You know, every stage of every part of creation, God designed and God created. In the beginning, God. 
Isn't it amazing that he preferred, he prepared the entire world and universe perfectly adapted to man. It shows a loving God there right from the beginning. Uh, just a quick comment on that, Will. Uh, it's a very, as Len said, a very profound word, or very profound a couple of words. Job 26.7, which I'm not going to read to you, but it says that the Job acknowledged that God hung the world upon nothing. In other words, he was not indebted to pre-existing matter. He spake and it came into being. What's interesting is that you get this brief brevity of words describing how God created the world. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. When you compare that, say, with what God said to Moses when he wanted the sanctuary built, there are seven chapters in the book of Exodus, seven chapters on everything that God asked him to do. Here you just simply get the statement, in the beginning, God created. Amazing. Yeah, yeah I, I just wanted to point out something I think perhaps people forget, and it's totally awesome to me, and that is the fact that everything on the earth that God created, he created for mankind. It wasn't for himself. It was for mankind's pleasure and enjoyment and it's just awesome when you look at this amazing earth that God created solely for our benefit. Absolutely right. Exactly. It, it actually, this is a display of the infinite wisdom of God. Yeah. You know, that magnificent statement that uh, Len read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is not the only basis uh, in the scripture of creation by an eternal God. There are a few other texts. Helen, you have one for us. Yes, I do. Just before I, I um, read that, I'd just like to say, isn't it interesting how God didn't decide to make man or woman first? He, got, he set up the world so everything was in place, you know, the, and before the plants he set up light. You know, I mean, wisdom, it's just, it blows my mind every time. But let me share with you another um, portion of Scripture, John 1, 1 to 3 says here, and it's talking about the deity of Christ, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Just imagine, here is God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you know, working out all this together before creation. The, you know, it just blows your mind, doesn't it, when you stop and think about it. We mm. serve an awesome God, and here we see that Jesus was also the creator. Yes, we can see now another affirmation that God created everything that we see and we know. But there is yet another text that is very valuable to us about God being the creator and the beginning and the originator of all. Nick, you have a text for us there. Yes, I'm reading it from Hebrew chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made worlds. You know, to me... And I think you will agree with me, panel. It is not a comforting thing to know nothing about our origins. It's not comforting at all to be caught up in the midst of a philosophy of just that we are here by pure chance. And I, I wonder what difference does it really make to us 
to know that we are created by God rather than being here by, by just chance, as, as um, evolution tells us. What does that mean to you? Well, just before we deal with that, well, there is another text, Colossians 1.16, talking about Christ, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. You know, I find this a very important issue, what we've just been talking about, those three texts. If I was, the, my ancestry went back to some slime in a pond, I wouldn't have much dignity. I think the fact that we are created by God gives human beings dignity, gives us purpose, it gives us value. And I would also like to say that it gives us comfort. We are not in this world all alone. We are the product of a loving God who cares for us. And another thing, it helps us recognize who we are. We are not the super beings of the universe. We are part of a hierarchy. First is God, then the angels. Then I would like to suggest probably human beings. And then we have lower orders of creation. So to me, it says we are not alone. We have someone with whom we can relate, who loves us, who made us. And I think that's very, very important. Thank you, Len. Brenton? Just quickly, Will, Len touched on some good points. One of the things that comes with recognising our origin, in other words, where we came from, and more specifically, who we came from, it then introduces another element into our whole being. It's called accountability. Now, accountability is interesting because the first two chapters of the Bible make it very clear why God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. They were placed there to tend it and to look after it. Even though sin has come about in chapter 3 of Genesis, and we are now in the era of sin, I believe as stewards of God's creation that accountability is still there. God still holds us accountable for the way we treat the environment, the way that we treat one another, the way that we treat the animals, the way that we look after agriculture and all of these things. I believe all of those things are part and parcel of the accountability that God has placed on human beings as a result of their divine creation. Yes. Len, I thought you were reading my mind when you started. When I put down the same in my mind, I was thinking dignity, certainly. It gives us meaning. It gives us purpose. But, you know, the final recreation Christ promised at his second coming is only possible if he is truly the creator at the beginning. And for me, that gives me an amazing hope. Just the same amount of divine energy to recreate than as it is to create. But you know, folks, it does make us stop and realize, incomprehensible almost, that this great creator God would come down and die for his creatures here on earth. Mm. Um, does that strike you as, as incomprehensible, profound? What do you think? Last week I was talking about curl grubs, those little white grubs that curl up. They're exposed to light that live in the garden. I tried to make an analogy where would I give my life for a curl grub? And I think that's like God giving his life for us. 
Yes, so true. Even though it blows our mind, he considered us worthy enough that he died for each one of us. You know, that, that kind of, me to me, ties it together. We can leave it up in the air and say, oh, yes, we were created, and yes, we created lower than the angels and what have you. But the one thing that made a big difference for me when I, I first got to know God was my self-esteem was so, so low. And I didn't like the thought of coming out of a primordial swamp, and so I went to the scripture. And, and you know, when I sort of look at the scripture and I felt, I felt so unworthy and yet because he died for me, my self-esteem comes from him and it made such a difference to my life, you know, that God created me and he loved me enough that he would die for me. Charles Spurgeon wrote in 1857, Oh, how surprised angels were when they first informed that Jesus Christ, the Prince of Light and Majesty, intended to shroud himself in clay and become a babe, and live and die. We do not know how it was first mentioned to the angels. You may imagine what strange wonderment there was. What? Was it true that he whose crown was all bedight with stars would lay that crown aside? Could it be true that he who was everlasting and immortal would one day be nailed to a cross? A question indeed. Now we find the contention between creation and evolution, the alternate theory of the beginnings of uh, this world and of the universe. According to the account in Genesis, the seven days or the six days of creation, I'd like to ask the panel, are the days of creation literal days or did God require long periods of time? Uh, Ken, would you like to read us a text? right from that very first chapter in Genesis, which gives us light in this matter. This is from uh, Genesis 1 we're looking at. Verses 3 to 5. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. So what is so important about this text then in comparison to evolution? What are we told in this text? It makes it very clear as far as I can see that God sort of lays it out for us that there's a sun for the morning and a moon for the evening and as they go full cycle, that is one day. It doesn't say, oh, several days. It makes it clear it was one day. And as God is, is, is making the earth for us, it's our time frame, it's one day. Yes, Lynn. Some groups try to say that a day represents a thousand years, and they use that text from Second Peter 3, 8, which says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Well, as far as I'm concerned, you cannot apply that to the day definition given in Genesis. The day began at the evening, sunset and finish the next day at sunset that's how it was these days we have midnight to midnight but you can't uh, extrapolate that a day is a thousand years or a million years or something else the bible defines it evening and morning which for us is a 24-hour period yes in fact there is in uh, the ten commandments a hint about the length of days as well 
Uh, Helen, I believe you have that text for us, and we'll come back to you, Brenton. Yes, just before I say that text, I just wanted to make a comment on the word day. The Hebrew um, word means uh, is yom, which means a literal day. And I was reading through the week a commentary that said the Hebrew signif- the word day, the Hebrew signifies warmth and heat, while the name for night signifies a rolling up as night wraps all things in a shady mantle. I just thought that was a beautiful uh, thought to think when we go to sleep at night that God's rolled it all up for us. Let me read from Exodus 28 to 11. It says here, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger, which is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in in them is, and rested the Sabbath day, the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Well, it's pretty clear there that God claims, God speaking himself here, from the mount said that he created the earth in six days. You know, atheist evolutionists say that, uh, well, that God needed a lot of time. I I really believe that God did not, he can recreate everything in a moment if we really want, if he really wanted to. Besides, why does God really need lots of time, as you've indicated, Len? Why does he need a thousand years? You know, if you look at the Bible, we have a record of instantaneous miracles. I can uh, give you a chance of naming some, if you like, but I thought of Naaman, for example. Naaman immerses himself in the River Jordan. You watch him as he looks at his leprous skin after surfacing the third, the fourth, and the fifth time from under the water. His skin is still clearly leprous. He dips under the water again. Then, suddenly... His skin is clean and smooth after the seventh time, cleaned in an instant. It happens in a moment. And this is the way Jesus healed people in the New Testament as well. I don't think God needs time to do miraculous works. Well, having looked at uh, closer at the first days of creation, let's uh, focus on the seventh day of the creation week at, at, for a moment. Um, God made us in his image. And so how do we relate to that seventh day, the seventh day at the end of creation? Brenton, would you like to read for us Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3? Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all the work which God had created and made. I think it's interesting, Will, that um, he uses the word blessed. Another word for blessed is to make happy and sanctified. Another word for that is to make holy. So this day was a holy day. But I find it interesting because God hadn't been working hard. He hadn't worked up a sweat during the previous six days. So you have to ask yourself the question... What is it that we are resting from? I think the important answer here is simply this. When God rested, 
it means that he, he was completely satisfied with his work of creation. Everything was in its place. The crowning act of creation was Adam and Eve, who were there to tend the garden. Everything had been completed. Therefore, God was able to rest knowing that there was nothing further that he could add or subtract to what he had already put in place. Yeah. I, I think when we come to the Sabbath, we rest in the fact that there is nothing that we can add or subtract to our salvation in Jesus. Yes. Len? Well, I'd like to suggest that God made a memorial of himself and of his creation in telling people to rest. There was a memorial to remember that God was the creator. Of course, most people these days, they don't even uh, believe in God, so therefore uh, they don't want to keep the Sabbath. A lot of people, of course, like to keep Sunday. That's not a memorial of creation. It's not a memorial of redemption. But we are told to keep the Sabbath. While you were talking, Brenton, I was thinking of Adam. You know, imagine Adam emerging from the hand of his creator his muscles and his nerves brimming with energy and the spark of life. And the first thing God says to him, now, Adam, I want you to rest. Yeah. <laughs> rest. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Well, clearly there's more than just physical rest here. It's a commemoration of rest in Christ or resting in God. And I think that's the very beauty of the Sabbath, isn't it? Not only for people that haven't worked hard in the week, whose bodies don't need regeneration, here we can rest in Christ and rest in the wonderful principle of salvation, don't you think? Well, maybe there's a comment here that needs to be made before you move on, and that is simply that. Sometimes we come to the Sabbath and we're so desperately tired physically and sometimes mentally and emotionally that we don't have the resources. Accept that rest and understand that rest. Maybe God's trying to tell us something here, that when we come to his holy day, he doesn't want us in a state of inertness or utter exhaustion. He wants us to be able to rejoice in everything that he's done. Yes, yes. Of course, Lidger, he gave us our Sabbath, this service for a special reason, didn't he? There's a text in Ezekiel 20, which is of value for us right here. Yes, and it says in Ezekiel 20, verse 12, it says, Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And also in the, the fourth commandment that Helen read it before in Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. The fourth commandment, the Sabbath, is the center of the Decalogue. And um, uh, after resting upon the seventh day, God sanctified it or set it apart as a day of rest for man. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for Sabbath. It says in Mark 2.27, he created the Sabbath as the eternal sign and seal of God's covenant with his people. In the fourth commandment, it says that first he rested, and second he blessed the seventh day, and third he sanctified it and made it holy. So no other day in the Bible receives these three designations. Uh, these three actions are repeated in the fourth commandment as we read before, 
and God writes with his own finger on the tablets of stones that he gave it with, uh, to Moses to bring back to his people from the mountain. So when God wrote it on those pieces of stones, it means to remain forever. He wrote it in fire with his finger that only the fire could penetrate the, the stone and remain inscripted there forever. Absolutely so. And you know that uh, by commemorating the Sabbath day and remembering it as it relates to creation, I think that if man had always kept the Sabbath, there would have been no place for evolution because week by week we would have been reminded of the Creator God. But you know, if we go to the New Testament, we find that Jesus also affirms the Sabbath or the way he relates to it. I would like to mention something also here in regard to the sanctification of things. You know, and it was mentioned there that God sanctified the Sabbath. And somebody mentioned that the uh, uh, Sabbath was also uh, memorial in time. Now, you heard also maybe that saying that it's also a cathedral in time. And that makes a lot of sense to me because Christianity is so much connected with worship. And too often, that uh, the true worship, to worship God, is lost into those big cathedrals which men did in order to recognize God in their lives and forgot the most important cathedral which God created, which was the Sabbath. And, you know, the disciples came to worship God, even though, even though they were on the river side or on whatever. It was not necessary to be in a pompous, very sophisticated building. But people can be trapped into this and uh, lose the meaning of uh, worship. Yes. Clearly. I'd like also to say that one of the most important uh, purposes of God in creating the Sabbath day by uh, placing it aside and uh, made it holy and uh, sanctified it is just because uh, he needed to spend time with his creatures in a different way. Because if we set aside everything, all our work and all, all our worries uh, and everything, we can focus on God's love. We can focus on a special relationship with God on a Sabbath. So this was the purpose of God to spend a special time with his creatures. Yes, you're right, Ken. And it's so fascinating that he made the Sabbath on a Saturday. And if you look at uh, over 400 languages in the world, Sabbath is their actual Saturday day. And God, I believe, has put this in place so that man is no, there's no way he cannot, he can forget this day because it comes up every week. So I think it's quite amazing. Yes, I speak to uh, African languages and in both of those languages, Saturday is uh, Sabato, Sabato or Sabbath. We've dealt with some Old Testament references to the keeping of the sab Sabbath in commemoration of, cre of creation. We find Jesus in the New Testament reinforcing the Bible teaching regarding the Sabbath day. Len, uh, you have a text there for us from Luke. Yes, a small comment first. In her 2008 Christmas address, Queen Elizabeth said this, 
the world would do well to follow the example and teachings of Jesus Christ. Well, what was Jesus' example? Luke 4.16 says, So he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Jesus worshipped in the synagogue on Sabbath. So those people have those little wristbands, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, one of the things that Jesus did was worshipped on the Sabbath day, the day that he had made back at creation. Thank you, Lynn. Granton? Revelation 14, 6 and 7 says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. The hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. The comment that we could make there is this is the direct reference to Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. We've discussed earlier on in our discussion today that the Sabbath involves rest. God rested. He invites us to rest. It's interesting that the third of these three messages states that anyone who worships the beast in his image doesn't receive any rest. So I guess we could summarise it all by saying this. If you come back, and we are inviting our listeners now to participate in this, if you come back to the worship of God as the creator on the day that he has set aside to worship him, you will receive the rest that he has promised. Any other form of worship, you will be in the other category where there will be no rest, day or night. So I think it's a positive. It's something that we can hold out that God is still inviting us to enter into his Sabbath rest and it's still available, even in 2020. That's a welcome, welcome lifestyle change, yes. You know, panel, um, we're living in a time now, talking about creation and those first chapters in Genesis. We live in a time when traditional marriage is under attack. We find marriage for the first time in um, the first chapters of uh, Genesis as well. What does the inspired creation account of Genesis teach us about uh, God's plan for the human family? Len? Well, marriage was originally, uh, began, commissioned, if you like, at creation. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over everything living thing rather that moves on the earth. Now there are a whole lot of interesting issues from this, but it points to the origin of man. Does not say anywhere here in the Bible that God made monkeys and man was the product of monkeys. It said God made man both male and female and God instituted marriage. Yes. 
And of course, the, uh, there's a specific statement there about male and female. He created them. And that seems to fit the best. It does fit the best in the whole marriage arrangement, doesn't it? Yes. We're living in an entirely different world today where uh, we see um, all sorts of um, additions and aberrations to what God intended right in the beginning. In Genesis 2 verse 8, God says something interesting as well. Genesis 2.18, Nick? Yeah, Genesis um, also, uh, well, it, um, the remarks are very, very important. It says that, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. It's interesting that here, as we uh, talked about the Sabbath before, and the family now, we are talking about the first two institutions which God put together. How amazing it is that both of these institutions are heavily attacked today. And we know that Satan, the enemy of God and the enemy of humankind, he will counterfeit everything what God has set in place for our good. And we are talking about here about the Sabbath, who most of the people will just stay against it. And family, right now, all over the world, people are more in support of the things which God have not created. But on the other hand, he even said that it's an abomination to God that men will come together with men and, and all those things. But this is, these are the things which the world is uplifting and supporting. And we need to know this now, that that's the work of the enemy of God and the enemy of man, which is Satan. Yes, both institutions uh, introduced to us in Genesis have come under a severe attack. Uh, I think, uh, Lydia, we could read uh, a little um, just quickly on Genesis 2, 21 to 25. Um, the... Um, the origin of um, the marriage relationship. Genesis 2, 21 to 25. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to man, to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, we observe here that God designed that both male and female were to be biologically, physically, and emotionally the counterpart to each other. So the woman was taken and created from Adam's rib, and they were created to complement each other. So they were the perfect fit for each other, so that Adam could exclaim, when Eve was later designed from his rib and he saw her and he was so pleased and he could ex exclaim very 
excitedly that this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So Adam called her woman. Isn't it amazing that God actually gave man, men and women the wonderful privilege of procreation, continuing creation, after the Genesis model by, um, by intimacy and uh, having children born. And male and a female is the only real possibility of procreating, procreating a future generations. It doesn't work with a man and a man and a woman and a woman. But um, Helen, you have a lovely text for us um, where Jesus was uh, challenged on, uh, on marriage in, in the Bible, in Matthew 19. Matthew nineteen three to 6 says, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so then they are no longer two but one flesh therefore what god has joined together let not man separate it's interesting that uh, that jesus also quotes from the old testament genesis the creation record when yes. he says god made them male and female well, we know that uh, moderns view traditional marriage as an out-of-date tradition, limits of personal freedom or permanent freedom. Uh, I don't know what we could say to that, but uh, would anybody like to comment on that before we look at uh, the fall? I would like to say that uh, God uh, focuses on marriage that... Um, uh, requires a man to leave his father and mother and be, be joined uh, to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Uh, so the Bible places so much emphasis on the family unit and uh, this is highlighted also, observe, we observe in the Ten Commandments, here is showing that God's character was to be transmitted for the future generations and there is another commandment which says, oh, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving, given to you. So these two important institutions, marriage and Sabbath, Satan is working hard to destroy it. And we can see it now in our days and in our lives that many divorces uh, are uh, taking place. Yes. Lynn? Yes, I know some people say marriage is outdated. Well, I disagree with that. Marriage is very satisfying. Mm. But this business about freedom, I'd like to mention something here. Uh, I ask the question, what is freedom? Is freedom licensed to do what you like? Well, it's not. Because if a person um, decides to cross the barriers of uh, limitations, there is not happiness. Uh, a study was done some time ago with children and it was discovered that children are happiest when they have boundaries. They know I can do this, this and this, but this is the point where I'm not allowed to go anymore. Children who are brought up in an environment like that are the happiest. Those who don't know their boundaries 
are often unhappy children. Mm. And I think the same applies to adults. Yes. Mm. Brenton, you had something? Oh, just very quickly, uh, Will, time is getting away with us. In the world we live in 2020, uh, we have same-sex unions, we have heterosexual unions, and I don't know whether our lawmakers and our society, in our society have clearly thought through what the next generation is going to look like. God set out male and female in the first place as an order not only for procreation, but I believe as an order that there would be a complement there would be a balance between the way males think, the way women think, the way they interact with one another. I believe that was perfectly balanced. What we're introducing into society now is in the future you will have children from same-sex unions, you will have children from uh, heterosexual unions. Can you imagine all of this, this, these children together in a playground talking to one another about their parents? Can you imagine the various moral standards and the various um, ways of looking at society that these children are going to receive? What I would suggest to you is this. I would suggest that in the future, we will end up with a thoroughly confused and aimless generation that doesn't have any strict standards, as Len has said. They don't have any boundaries and anything goes. If anything goes, I believe you could simply say that the fall of civilization is imminent. I was just going to say, I think the whole problem with the, the today's view on marriage is that God is left out of the equation. Mm. Uh, I think if people came back to God and committed to God, there would be a commitment to the marriage that God asks us to do. Yes, Ken. Yes, I just thought that was a very good uh, point that Brendan brought up. What I'd like to add to that is, that with the institution of man and woman, it's a balance in life, and God has created everything in life to be balanced and, and run smoothly. But once you change the equation, then things go out of balance, and you have all sorts of issues. Just before we move on, I, I would like to make a point here, and probably from a totally different point of view. I can see and I can hear you know, what we're talking about here, and it's not right what's happening with all these things. One thing I like to say, we live in the end of times and we were told in the Bible that things will happen exactly like what we see now happening, like in the days of uh, Noah or like, like in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. What I would like to say that we as Christians may not even stop this because God foretold us that these things will happen. But what we need to know is to turn ourselves to God and not to be trapped into supporting these things which are uh, uh, an ab abomination to God. That's what we need to do. We may not be able to stop that. And even though this world is so much concentrated on the things which works against us, for example, environment, and we try to fix that, and we are not able to keep the things which are so clear in the Bible, in, as we talked about Sabbath, the value of marriage, all those things which are so important and we are concentrating so much on saving this planet uh, environmentally. I just want to make a clear, plain point here. We are called, and all of us, and those who are listening today, we are called to give ourselves to God and to allow God to work in our lives the change needed for these days we live in. Yes, wise words. Thank you. Uh, you know, one of the great things that 
an unfortunate things that we find in the in the first chapters of Genesis as well is where everything does go wrong right in the beginning. You know, within it, within the very first three chapters of Genesis, we find a uh, a terrible tragedy starting. God's created work in the beginning was regarded as very good, but unfortunately, good didn't remain forever because uh, we find that. Um, there was a test in Genesis chapter 2 where God said to um, Adam and Eve, look, look after the garden and keep it. You can eat of every fruit except of the tree of good and evil. Uh, you shall not eat of that. And, of course, something as a result of their disobedience happens. It's absolutely catastrophic. And they, regard, they disregard the restriction that's placed upon them and the instruction of the Creator. I wonder if we could comment on what actually happened there, panel. What actually happened in the Garden of Eden? Uh, Well, in answer to that, it's interesting. These verses here, actually translated from the Hebrews, it actually means where God says that in the day thereof that you eat it, you will surely die. The Hebrew actually means dying, you shall die. That can be interpreted to mean that on the day that you transgress, sentence will be passed upon you. It doesn't necessarily mean that you should die right there and then on the spot. Many people have wondered about that particular issue, but I want you to think a little bit outside the square on this one. Had God destroyed Adam and Eve as soon as they sinned, there would have been no Cain and Abel. There would have been no flood. There would would have been no falling leaves. There would have been no gradual degradation of creation as a result of sin. There would have been instant sentence and there wouldn't have been anything after it. Now, what God has done is he has allowed this horrible drama that we call sin to play itself out so that not only we can see the results of it, but also the angels in heaven and those from the unfallen worlds can also see what sin actually does. They can see the long-term results of it. You know as well as I do, if you cut something off straight away, even though the sentence has been carried out, it doesn't give anyone an opportunity to say, but but what about this? What about that? What about something else? By doing what God did, by saying that in the day you eat of it, you will surely die, they began to die. And in the very next chapter, we find Cain killing his brother Abel, and it all goes downhill from there. In other words, the consequences of sin would never have been apparent if they'd been destroyed there and then on the spot. Yes, in fact, if they were destroyed, uh, there would be no uh, Brenton and Will and Len either. (laughs) Len, yes. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Some people have asked the question, why did God put a restriction on Adam and Eve? Actually, it wasn't that. He actually gave them a choice. And you cannot have choice without love. So God in his love gave them a choice. Unfortunately, they made the wrong choice. If there is no choice, there can be no love. Now, I know that's a pretty easy thing to say, but when you think about it, it's true and it's important. So God in his love gave them a choice. They made the wrong choice. God in his love then remedied the bad choice that they made and the bad choices that humanity has made ever since through 
giving his own life for fallen mankind. One thing we should mention here, they were encouraged to make that choice, that wrong choice, because enter the villain. (laughs) And the villain, of course, was Satan. And Satan had stirred up trouble in heaven. We won't go into it all. He'd stirred up trouble in heaven so much so that he was cast out of heaven and he found a spot down here on earth where they didn't reject him. And we've suffered with that ever since. Yes. In fact, Paul says in Romans 5 verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death has spread to all men because all have sinned. As Brenton has said, if God had to have cut off the uh, human race from there because of the one sin, it would have been tragic. But you know, God stepped in and made a wonderful promise. It was that promise in Genesis 3.15, which we'll be reading soon. In Revelation 12, verses 7 to 12, gives us a background, um, even prior to Eden, of where the rebellion actually started against God. And Len, you have that text for us, Revelation 12. I'll read it. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. But the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. Now we read in Genesis 1 about the beginnings. We read in Revelation about the endings of the world and also the one who caused all the trouble in the world, that ancient serpent, the devil, Satan. Clearly there's a war that's going on that's happened right even before creation in the Genesis record. And um, this war is continued throughout, and mankind has become a great victim, or they have suffered very badly as a result of the attacks of the devil upon this earth. But you know, God actually makes a wonderful promise. And you know, one of the wonderful things about the book of Genesis is that right there, even in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, a promise comes already to say that all will be well if uh, that God provides a promise of a, of a saviour to uh, humankind. And uh, Lydia, you have a text there for us to read of that wonderful promise that is made to Adam and Eve by Jesus himself. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush you, and you will strike his heel. 
Yes, that would be Jesus Christ who would step in to the history of mankind and uh, offer the future. Brent. Very, very quickly. Uh, um, the word here, he shall bruise your head, in the Hebrew uh, will is in the singular. It's talking about a single individual. It's not talking about a group of people. This is a fight to the death. One is going to kill the other one, and the other one will bruise his heel. This is talking about when Christ comes to this earth and by his death on the cross, he destroys the power of Satan, and ultimately Satan will be destroyed. I think this is a truly wonderful text because Christ has already carried that out. Now we're just waiting for the consummation of all of this to be uh, put into place, Will. Perhaps we could end with uh, some words by Dr. Billy Graham, where he says, God gave us liberty and we abused it. God gave us strength and we dissipated it. God gave us privilege and we squandered it. This vessel God had created broke at the point of our responsibility and became utterly marred. Every day, he says, the wrong choice in Eden is reenacted a million times. Men and women trade their divine rights for a pittance of pleasure. They trade their favor with God for the tawdry things of this world. But now, as then, God in patience and tenderness seeks to restore and redeem his marred vessels. Absolutely wonderful indication of God's goodness and kindness. I guess that we um, can end this study by praying that God would give us greater insight, not only into our own condition, but into the wonderful solutions and privileges that we find within the scriptures. And I'm going to invite uh, Ken, if he would close in prayer for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful opportunity to talk about your word today over the radio. We pray for all those listening that they would think deeply about what is said and open their hearts to your Holy Spirit so that you may bless them and give them peace in this world and the hope to be with Jesus when he comes back. Heavenly Father, the Bible signs of your return are all around us. The end of this age is approaching quickly. Help us, Lord, to get this message of hope out to this dying world. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.